0: Well, good morning, everybody. Really great to see you. How was the choir this morning? Amazing. Uh, what a, uh, it was just great to be able to listen in to this morning. And, you know, I am so grateful to be able to be back here. I think I actually came and visited Utah about 12 years ago. And I think, if I remember correctly, I might have even preached that day, but that was a long time ago. And at this point, you and my are age We probably don't even remember that. So, anyway, anyway, you know, here's what I love. You guys, uh, your pastor loves you, and I love that. It is really, really cool to see that and to see the way you love him. Uh, That ministered deeply to me this morning. So, uh, it is great to be with you all. I'm excited about your move. I'm looking forward to seeing what God is going to do. And I know the next couple years are going to be a little bit wild for you. And then you're going to move back, and it's going to be amazing and uh, to see how God works. I am also very grateful that your heart is not just for buildings, but your heart is for what God is doing in the world, and you want to use these buildings for His kingdom. And you also are very committed uh, to serving God uh, internationally and globally, whether it's going to Thailand as a team or supporting uh, unreached people groups or in, in, in ministering to unengaged people groups in Nepal. And i got to tell you something. This is interesting. I saw a photograph taken about two years ago where a group of evangelists in Nepal got together and they made a giant map on the floor of this building they were in. And the map was so big it probably stretched from here all the way to the exit sign over there. And they just laid it all out on the floor and it was a map of Nepal. And they had identified on this map all of the unengaged and unreached people groups in Nepal. And uh, at the time, it just looked like an overwhelming task. I mean, how are we going to how are we going to reach these people? There had to be about 50 pastors in the room. They had this map laid out on the floor, and these pastors and evangelists got down on their hands and knees, and they began praying over the people groups on that map that they had painted out on the floor. I got to tell you, that was two years ago, and I also want to tell you that today there are no unengaged people groups in Nepal. Isn't that amazing? And I will also tell you that that's in part because of your commitment. I know you guys have taken on, I think, a couple of unengaged people groups over there. And I want to tell you that God is is hearing their prayers and answering their prayers in part through you. All right, this morning I want to share with you two important truths that will rock your world. These two truths totally have transformed my life in the last dozen years or so. And I have been wrestling with them every single day since. I get up in the morning and I think about these two truths, and I wonder to myself, what do they mean for me today? And my life has truly been transformed by these two truths. Now, you know that when it comes down to the, the, the core or the essence of the Christian faith, there are a lot of ideas out there. Some people say that the essence of the Christian faith is the golden rule. In other words, here is a list of ethical standards that we adhere to. We got our Beatitudes, we got the golden rule, and that's what Christianity is. And there are others that say that Christianity is a set of important must-have beliefs. In other words, the resurrection, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the authority of the Scripture. And so they have this core set of beliefs, and they say this is what Christianity is. This is the foundation of Christianity. And there are important beliefs, absolutely no doubt about. That is absolutely important. It is important that we have an ethical standard. It is important that we have a core set of beliefs. But is this the core, the ultimate foundation of the Christian faith? I want to share with you two truths this morning that I absolutely believe at the bottom of my heart, this is the essential core. Not that those other things aren't important, they're very important, but this is the core. Now before I tell you what those two things are, I want to share a little bit about uh, my upbringing. Now Ty and I did grow up in Nigeria together, we went to boarding school together, and uh, I wasn't born there, but I was taken to Africa when I was just a young kid. But my grandparents went to Africa in 1925. And they wound up going to a very remote tribe that had never heard the name of Jesus before. And Grandma and Grandpa wanted to share the good news of Christ with people that were resistant, people who who had never heard, people who didn't particularly want to hear. And the tribe that they were sent to was the Tungali. Now, the Tangali were very primitive. You can see from this next slide just how primitive they were. But what people back in the day understood is that the Tangali not only were primitive, but they were a warrior tribe, and you did not want to get on the wrong side, because if you did get on the wrong side, you could wind up in a pot for dinner. And that's the way it was. My grandmother's a real short, stocky woman. She used to take these little silver or little little white uh, pills. I think they were paludrin, anti-malaria pills. And she used to tell the, tell the people in the tribe, these little white pills, they make my skin very, very white and very, very bitter. And she it was, yeah, it was crazy. And they were told, don't go there because you, 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 this will be the end of you. But God had called them to the Tengali. Now, the Tengali worshipped a whole pantheon of spirits, but there was one spirit that was the, the, big, the big spirit, the, the, the ultimate spirit, and it was the spirit called Tagma. And Tagma was in charge of the rain. And so every year when the rains came, it, it signified Togma is happy with you. Now your plants will grow. Uh, everything will come back to life. You can grow your millet so you can have your millet beer. And, you know, you're, you're going to have water. And it's, it's all going to be good. And so everybody wanted to keep Togma happy. And so they regularly did sacrifices to Togma. They would do anything to keep the spirit of rain happy. Well, Grandpa built this mud hut. And for a long time, he had a thatched roof on it, and that all worked out pretty good, except that the thatched roof, you know, cobras would get in there. I mean, that's the, that was not a good thing. And so Grandpa decided they needed to get rid of the thatched roof. So he decided to put a pan roof on the house. Now, understand that there had been no pan roofs in this part of Africa for forever. I mean, nobody had ever seen one. And Grandpa put this pan roof on the house, and I wish I had a picture of it now, but it was so bright that when the sun glinted off of that roof, you could see that house for miles around. But in any way, one year, now what does that have to do with Togma? Well, here's how. So one year, the rains didn't come on time. And in Africa, that's a pretty important deal because if the rains don't come, the millet doesn't grow, and the sorghum doesn't grow, and the corn doesn't grow, and people start to get really hungry, and and honestly, they start to starve. And so one year, uh, the rains didn't come on time, and everybody was afraid that Togma was upset. The spirit of rain has been upset. We didn't sacrifice well enough. We didn't do the right things. Now Togma is angry and there will be no rain and people will die. And so everybody was all upset about this. And then they started thinking about who do we blame? And they thought about the house with the shiny roof. That roof is taking attention away from Togma. That roof is so shiny that it's just offensive to the spirit world and that's why we have this problem and so one day grandma looked out the back window of that house and there's a big mountain behind it and she looked out and she saw a whole bunch of warriors on the mountain and they didn't have any clothes on and they had oiled their bodies and they had spears in their hands And they were gathering there on the mountain. And then after a while, she watched, and she began to watch them snaking down the side of the mountain. As they came down the side of the mountain, it became very clear to you, "Uh uh-oh, something's going wrong. And the next thing you know, they had completely surrounded that house, hundreds of them. Grandma was petrified. Grandpa was off doing something, and so she was alone there in the house with the maid. And she came to the door, and how do you greet people in a friendly way? When the guy is standing there with absolutely no clothes on, his body oiled, and he's got a spear in his hand. And Grandma tried to be friendly, and so in the Tangali way, she expressed a greeting. The guy wasn't smiling. Instead, he went on to tell her, You have offended our spirit with your roof. And all this talk about Jesus, you have to leave now. And Grandma said, Please don't, uh, my husband is not here. Can you give us some time? Can I go in and pray to to my God and maybe he will give us favor and he will make it rain? And finally the warriors agreed to let her go into the house and pray. And they're they're all around the house standing and milling about the house. And grandma goes back inside and she gets down on her knees and she says, God, you need to come through. You need to make it rain. And Grandma and Grandpa were people of prayer, and they lived their entire lives seeking the heart of God. They were people who were totally dependent on the Lord. For them, Christianity was not about a set of propositions or a, or a way of life, a good ethical standards. It was far more than that. It was about union with Christ. It was about knowing God intimately and deeply and having Him indwell them. And so as Grandma prayed, God did something extraordinary. It started off with a little cloud on the horizon straight out of the story of Mount Carmel, and then it got bigger and bigger, and then pretty soon... It got dark and the horizon was filled with lightning and thunder and it began to rain. And there had never been a rain like that before. God broke through because people realized there was another spirit stronger than Tagma, And I got to tell you, fast forwarding from that story, I was in Nigeria a couple years ago and I was meeting with the head of the Evangelical Churches of West Africa and um, uh, interestingly enough, here's a church association with now 10 million members scattered all over Nigeria, neighboring countries, they even have congregations in the U.S. now. And needless to say, the founder or the president, not the founder, but the president of equa is a Tangali man. And he's got all kinds of PhDs behind his name. He's an incredibly learned man. But here's a man who, when he was 12 years old or uh, in sixth grade, he, he was mentored by my grandfather. And gave his life to Jesus Christ. And today he heads up an association that has over 10 million followers of Jesus Christ. You know, this to me is the kind of stuff that I look at and say, wow, Lord, amazing, amazing. And grandma and grandpa, their entire lives are like that. I just, I just remember all the stories that grandma used to tell me and about how God intervened in their lives. But here were people that their Christian faith wasn't about a set of propositions. It wasn't about a a code of ethics as important as all those things are. For Grandma and Grandpa, it was about simply this. I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. And I remember my granddad had all these books. And I remember one book in particular, he gave it to me. It still sits in my office in my house right now. And I picked it out the other day, and it's written by Andrew Murray, a South African pastor. And the title of the book is Union with Christ. And honestly, for my grandparents, this was the essence, the core, the foundation of the Christian faith. It took me a long time to walk into this because in my own life, I was always so obsessed with being a practical preacher. You know, three steps to a happy marriage, five ways to be prosperous and successful in your life. And for me, it was always about how do we make everything real practical as a pastor. But I've come to realize that the Christian life is more than just three steps to this and five steps to that. Christian life is about union with Jesus Christ. And some people look at that and they say, too mystical, too esoterical, too too ethereal, can't wrap my head around it. To me, the Christian life is an adventure of figuring this out. And when you look at the scriptures and you realize all the verses that are there about this, it's amazing. Ephesians 2.10, where God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Unto good works, God prepared in advance for us to do. All right? I think of Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, for you died and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. In fact, if you've got your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3 for a moment, because I want you to notice something else here. This is amazing because Colossians is just loaded with verses that talk about this very idea. So Colossians 3.3 says, You died to this life. Your real life is hidden with Christ in God. But move your eyes further up. Verse 20 of chapter 2, You have died with Christ, and He has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. Moving further up, chapter 2, verse 10, So you also are complete through your union with Christ. It just goes on and on and on, in Christ, Christ in you, in Christ, Christ in you. Fifty-six times Paul says talks about being in Christ. This is the core of the Christian life. Now I'm going to give you real quick three simple applications that rise out of this, and there's a whole lot more. That's why I say is it is an adventure of a lifetime to figure this out because there's always new chapters all right to it. Number one, your identity. I want you to get this down. Who you are is who you are in Christ. Did you get that? Who you are is who you are in Christ. Now, if I were to ask you here just randomly, what, who, who are you? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Now, my guess is a lot of you, the first thing that comes to your mind is what you do. Well, I'm a teacher. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a plumber. I'm, I, that's what I do. Was well, that who you are? And some of you might wrap it up in your accomplishments, You know, this is what I've accomplished. This is who I am. Is that who you are? Some of you might even define yourselves by who you are in relation to somebody else. Is that who you are? I want you to know that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your primary identity is who you are in Christ. It is not what you do, it is not who you know, it is not what you've accomplished. It's who you are in Christ. So if you want to figure out who you are in Christ, then you need to figure out how did Jesus view himself? And when you start going through the Gospels and you start trying to understand how did Jesus view himself, what was his sense of self-identity, I'll tell you what it was. He was the Son of the Father. He was the beloved Son of the Father. Everything flowed out of that sense of the union with the Father. Everything flowed out of, I am the beloved one, I am the Son of the Father, and everything in his perspective of life flowed out of that sense of identity. The implications of this are absolutely huge. So I took my identity, like all of us do, from what I did. I was a mega church pastor, okay? And ever since I was 21 years old, it was grow the church, grow the church. And I had all these great strategies on how to grow a church. I had what I called my top 10 guidelines. And they were all great. Birds of a feather flock together, so pick your niche and scratch their itch, okay? (laughs) Homogenous units. More hooks in the pond, or more hooks in the pond, means the more fish you catch. Okay, small groups, Uh, or to get to get bigger, you got to get smaller, small groups. Okay, how about uh, uh, excellence is everything, but personality helps. I mean, I had them all. I had ten strategies to grow the church. Problem is, my identity was wrapped up in what I did for God, and you know, I reached a point in my career as a pastor. I was pastoring a large church, but I lost my heart because. I, I just wasn't sure we were making disciples of Jesus anymore. And I was spinning, pedal to the metal, working 80-hour weeks, driving myself crazy, trying to keep ahead of all the things that were happening and keep the momentum moving. And by the way, number 10 on the list is momentum matters. And constantly running and running and running and running. And finally, after taking a break from pastoral ministry, I felt like I didn't know who I was anymore. And I thought, well, I'm a pastor. Well, no, I'm not a pastor. I don't have a church to go to. I'm not preaching anymore. I don't have an office to go to. I don't have a staff to manage. I don't even have a building to go to. I I, I guess I'm not a pastor. Well, who am I? I decided to have my quiet time in the book of Genesis for some reason. I thought maybe, okay, it's the book of new beginnings. This is a new beginning for me. So I decided to start reading Genesis. I got down to verse 2, and it says this, And the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And I said, God, that's me. I'm formless and void. I don't even know who I am anymore. I had staked my identity on what I did and what I had accomplished, not on who I am in Christ. I didn't know who I was. I was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Now, I love the rest of the verse because it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God was preparing for something new. I went over to the New Testament, started looking at how Jesus saw himself, and I realized, whoa, he saw himself as the Son of the Father. What a great foundation to live your life. Now, some of you are women, you're a daughter of the father. Okay? You matter. You're in a beloved, you're the beloved of the father. All right? And then secondarily, when I looked at Jesus, not only was he constantly referring to himself as the son of the father, he referred to himself as being sent. And over and over again, he, he, he seems to possess this powerful notion of sentness. Forty-one times Jesus talks about being sent. And I wondered, okay, so I am a son and a sent one. What does that mean? Right, here's an illustration of that. Okay, so. Uh, I got a friend, I was in India and doing a pastor's conference and about 50 pastors or so. And anyway, this guy that was doing it with me was, uh, his name's Reggie. And Reggie has like four master's degrees from theological seminaries. He's one of the most articulate, learned people I've ever met in my life. And we had an amazing week together in Orissa State training pastors. It was an amazing experience. And then one night we're sitting down together eating our naan and whatever and chicken tandoori, and I said, "Hey Reggie, tell me your story." He said, "You sure you want to hear?" It? And I said, "Absolutely, I want to hear. It. Why not?" He said, "Because it's unbelievable." I said, "Well, tell it to me anyway." So here's Reggie's story. Reggie was born into a very wealthy family in India. His father was a Brahmin priest. He had a statue of Lord Krishna in his garden that was priceless. People would come from far and wide to to collect the wisdom of his Brahmin priests and to worship at his altar. Well, it so happened that when Reggie was five years old, he got very, very ill, running a very high fever. And one night his mother put him to bed, just worried about him, wondering, is my son going to be okay? And she got up very early in the morning, went into Reggie's room to check up on him, and she could not wake Reggie up. And Reggie's body was cold and there was no pulse. And she realized that her son had died. I told you this story was unbelievable. Well, she didn't know what to do, and so she, she obviously went and got her husband. They did everything they could to try to restore him, you know, pumping on his chest, breathing in his mouth. And nothing was working. And finally, in despair, they gave up. Their son had died. So when the morning broke, the sun came up, they started calling their friends and family and people started gathering in the courtyard and they were wailing and they were mourning and everybody was troubled. And Meanwhile, Reggie's dad and mom were just grieving deeply and they began to prepare the body of Reggie for burial by just washing his body, weeping and crying and pouring their, their, their emotions out. It was a dreadful moment. But while all this was happening, something else was happening on the opposite side of town. There was a Dalit woman. A Dalit is an untouchable. Her lot in life was never to go beyond cleaning toilets and porta-potties, and that was her status in society. And everybody knew that the Dalits were the untouchables. Don't ever go near them. Don't touch them. But this little old woman loved God. And every morning she would rise up early in the wee hours of the morning and seek out god in prayer and she would pray and just say lord i want to be used of you and she she was a woman who learned about her identity was not a dalit as society viewed her but she was a daughter of the king and she had this profound sense that her life had meaning and purpose and that she was a sent one so that early morning she got up as usual to pray and the Spirit of God spoke to her and told her that she was to go and to pray for somebody on the other side of town. And she said, well, Lord, who should I go to? And I'll show you when you get there. So she came out of her hut and she started walking down through town all the along praying, Lord, where, who, who am I to pray of or Who am I to pray of her? And she walked and she walked and she walked and she walked. And finally, around 10 o'clock in the morning, she came by a house, a big estate with a big gate out front. And she heard on the other side of the gate wailing and people crying out in mourning. And her heart was grieving over what was going on on the other side of the wall. And in that moment, the Spirit of God said, This is it. I want you to pray. The child in this house. She knocked on the gate, and immediately somebody opened the gate on the other side and saw an impoverished Dolly woman there and said, What are you doing here? Go away. There's, there's somebody who's died and we're mourning. Go away, go away. And she begged and pleaded and said, no, God, my God has told me to come and pray. Go away, you're a dolly. you're untouchable, you don't belong, you're not worthy, but, 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 but my God has told me to come and pray. And she was so insistent. And finally other villagers began to gather there at the gate overhearing this conflict between the gatekeeper and the the dolly woman and everybody was yelling, go away, go away. And she just kept insisting, insisting, no, I have been sent to pray, I've been sent to pray. And finally Reggie's dad came out to see what all the commotion was about and he saw this woman and said, get out of here. No, I've been sent to pray, I've been sent to pray for a boy, please, please, I want... And finally the, the guy, she wouldn't leave and finally all the villagers said to Reggie's father, just let her in. And so he pointed his finger and says, I'm going to let you come in and pray. But if nothing happens, I'm going to kill you. So the woman came inside this estate with all these people standing around mourning and grieving. And they go into the house and there's Reggie's little body being prepared for burial. And, and she just says, okay, I, I want to pray for him. And they, they allowed her to kind of cradle, cradle him in her arms. And she began to pray for this five-year-old boy. God, bring him to life. God, bring him to life. And she poured her heart out to the Lord, and nothing happened. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. By then, I would have quit, except that, of course, she knew, I will kill you. Don't quit. And she kept praying and praying and praying, and then she started to cry. And the tears were rolling down her face, and they were falling on Reggie's body. And she prayed for 45 minutes until her her tears were bathing his body. body. And then all of a sudden, the water flow changed directions and Reggie peed in her eye. (laughs) Somehow God brought that little boy back to life. Reggie's dad was blown away. He immediately fell to his knees and gave his life to Jesus Christ. Six other members of the family all fell to their knees, gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Reggie's father took a sledgehammer, quickly raced out in the garden toward the statue of Lord Krishna and hammered the thing to pieces. People were in a panic and an uproar. What are you doing? What are you doing? It's priceless. But but my son is alive! They wound up having to run from their house. They lived in a different state, in a different place for the next six months every night because they had just destroyed the statue of Lord Krishna, which is forbidden. But God brought that little boy back to life. And as Reggie told me this story, I'm sitting there saying, Reggie, I don't, I don't understand this. It's crazy. And he said, I know it is. That's why I didn't tell you earlier. You wouldn't believe it. You know, when I look at that story, the thing that hits me is that woman. Because here's a woman that society said, you're nothing. You're just a dolly. You're untouchable. You don't matter. Your life is worth less than a cow. But she saw herself, no, I'm a daughter of the king. She saw herself, I have purpose. I have value. I am a sent one. See how it comes together? When you understand your identity, it doesn't matter what culture and society tells you, you understand I am a son, a beloved son of the Father, and I live out of the overflow of that union with Christ. That's an amazing thing. And to live your life with a constant awareness that I am sent, my life has meaning, my life has purpose. So here's the next thing I want to tell you, number two, and I'm going to rip through this really fast. I'm I'm coming, bro. Number two, I want you to know that your mission in life is the same as Jesus. You know what his mission was? To give his life that others might have life. You know, what would it look like to live your life out of that constant awareness? The purpose of my life is to give myself away for others that they might have life. No matter what age you are, no matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, your purpose is the same as that of Christ. You are inseparably intertwined with him. Your life is tied together with His life, and the purpose of His life is to give His life that others might have life. And what does it look like for you to live that mission in your life? Let me tell you one more thing here. And again, you got—it's up to you to unpack all this because it is way—the implications are so huge. But the last thing is this: I want to talk about your potential. I hear so many Christians kind of like, oh, my life, it just is just, just, I'm a failure. I can't succeed at anything. I keep falling into sin over and over again. What does it look like for you to tap into the potential of Christ in you? Do you realize you have the, you have the power of the resurrected Christ in you? Paul prayed that you would understand the implications of that. Nothing can hold you back. Nothing. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory. The powers of darkness can't hold you back. Close with one more quick story. I was in Malawi. I took a bunch of young guys over there to disciple them in missions, and we heard there was a big problem with AIDS. We knew there was. And I wanted these guys to figure out, okay, what can we do as a church? And so we went over there to do a reconnaissance trip to look at the big five of poverty, ignorance, disease, corruption, and darkness and to see if we could do something. And we wound up in this village way in the middle of nowhere. We heard that the, all the men had died in the village, Except for one old man, and, and that was it. And everybody else had died. And so uh, we decided to load up a pickup truck with rice. So we drove out to this village and we pulled out these big, giant 500 pound sacks of rice or 100 pound sacks of rice. And we had a big metal scoop and we're scooping the rice out. And the guys were working real fast because there were about 50 women there with bags or whatever they could bring to get rice. And so they're scooping it out, and bits of rice are flying over the edge. And this young girl, probably 15 years old or so, she's down in the dirt cleaning off individual pieces of rice and putting them in a fold of her, of her dress. My heart broke for her, so I got down in the dirt with her, and I'm just down there picking up individual pieces of rice, cleaning it off, and putting it in the fold of her dress. And after all the rice had been distributed, she had quite a, little, quite a little bit of collection of rice there, but all the women had their rice, about 50 of them, and the old man with his thick glasses sitting back there watching the whole thing, and then I got up and preached. And after I preached, I thought, okay, it was a you know, good message. I preached on the bread of life, you know, gluten-free alternative, whatever. And then I prayed. And while I was praying, it was a terrible shrieking sound. And I peeked, and I, I saw four women carrying this young lady out. And I, I thought, whoa, what's going on here? And so I stopped the prayer, and I said, what just happened? And these women said, oh, she has a demon. And I'm thinking, whoa, wait a minute. Ah, this is not my familiarity here. And so I, after, you know, we'd given all the rice out, and I said, all right, guys, we've got to get back to Mangochi, Better load up the truck. Let's head out. And these 20-year-old guys said, Pastor, we can't go. There's a girl with a demon here. We've got to do something. And I said, you don't get it. I'm a Baptist. I don't do that stuff. And they said, no, we have to deal with it. We can't go. And so I've, I got dragged into this thing. And so we, go, we, we walked down to where the collection of huts were, and we got to this hut, and here was this little girl this uh, teenager in the arms of her mother. And I said, what's your name? And she told me her name. I think it was Doha or something like that. And then I said, what happened? And she said, I have a demon. And I said, what does the demon do? He, makes, he pours boiling water on me. He, makes, he, he pushes me into the fire. And I said, well, well, how did you get the demon? And she said, my father had AIDS, and we went to the witch doctor, and he took a razor blade, and he nicked everybody on the wrist in the family to protect them from AIDS. Same razor blade. And then, and then he said that the oldest child in the family has to be dedicated to the spirit and that's me and this is my life and that's how i protect the rest of my family and my siblings from getting aids my heart was breaking and i said well can i pray for you and she said yes As soon as i began praying her eyes flipped up she was frothing at the mouth her body went rigid as a board I'm freaking out. I don't know what to do. This is not in my vein. I say, Lord, you got to do something here. Lord, in the name of Christ, you got to do something here. And then she kind of came out of it. And, I said, is, 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 and she said, no, it's not gone. It's still here. So then I had her stand up, and we formed a circle around here with these 20-year-old guys, and we began praying over her, interceding in the name of Jesus Christ, through the power of Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ who is in us is stronger than he who is out there. God, manifest yourself. And all of a sudden, after we've been praying, all of a sudden she threw her arms out and her face was beaming, and she simply said, it is gone. Me not knowing about these kind of things very well, other than what I read in the Gospels, I wasn't totally sure what to make of it, but I'll tell you, the next day the evangelists went back and that village is on fire for Jesus Christ. Someone stronger is here. I want you to know, your life has unlimited potential for the kingdom of God. Wherever you are now, do not settle, because there is more. Your identity, who you are, is who you are in Christ. Your mission is the same as that of Jesus, and your potential is unlimited. Let's pray together. Father, uh, it is amazing to think about these two truths, and we are barely scratching the surface of what they mean. It seems to me, Lord, the Apostle Paul was so much so far ahead of us on this. But, Lord, help us not to settle for a Christianity of toys and trinkets, but of one that is profoundly deep where we tap into the meaning of I am in Christ and Christ is in me. Set us off on this grand adventure, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.